Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Congratulations, it's Friday, you've made it. It's the 18th of September. Jan Franz here and we're talking about Europe's second wave. Yeah, I don't know if you've been on Instagram lately, Tom, and just had a peruse of all of the beautiful Europeans enjoying the Mediterranean beaches over there. I'm going to take a look at whether that has caused an uptick, a serious uptick in coronavirus cases. Certainly for the last two months or so, uh, pretty well everywhere, we have seen an upsurge, particularly among uh, adolescents and people in their 20s and 30s. Yeah, we're going to find out what's different about the second wave as opposed to the first wave in Europe. That's coming up in just a moment. First, here are the big stories of the day. Starting with some news that, um, look, no one expected to hear this. 111,000 jobs were created in the month of August. The unemployment rate fell from 7.5 to 6.8%. Sounding happy, slightly surprised there. The Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, confirming that incredibly the jobless rate went down last month, um, but he says the news isn't as good for the effective unemployment rate. Which takes into account not just those who are unemployed officially, but also those who have left the labour force or seen their hours reduced to zero, has fallen from 9.8% to 9.3%. Yeah, I suppose it does seem like good news all around, but I think if you dig a little deeper, it's a slightly different story. So of those 111,000 jobs that Josh Frydenberg was talking about, 60% of them were part-time. So there's questions around how many hours people are actually working. Also, the Bureau of Stats found that almost half of those jobs, so almost 50,000, well, just over 50,000 of them rather, were working as what's called sole traders without any employees. Now, what that means is that they've likely found a job for themselves in the gig economy. So think delivery drivers or Uber drivers, rather than, say, a job in the traditional nine-to-five full-time sense. And as the economy starts to recover, things are going to change for the 1.35 million Australians on JobSeeker, or the Dole. Um, Before the pandemic, they had to apply for up to 20 jobs a month, and that was suspended in March. But from the end of the month, they'll need to apply for up to eight jobs or risk having their payments cut off. And you'll be able to call your doctor for telehealth appointments instead of in-person appointments until at least March next year. Yeah, telehealth, which has been used more than 10 million times since the start of the pandemic, was meant to finish on September 28. But today, the PM will announce $2 billion to keep it going. Now, that cash will go towards keeping COVID tests free and home medicine delivery. Yeah, telehealth's been interesting. I had to use it one day when I had a bit of a a medical situation and it was so convenient. I had a doctor on the phone within half an hour and then I learned some new information about my case because I'd actually just sat in front of a UV lamp accidentally and it was quite a bizarre scenario. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, I had to go back to the doctor the same day And again, I was able to get the same doctor within about half an hour on the phone. So extremely convenient. Yeah. But on the other side of the coin, um, my brother's wife is a GP and she says it's it's really hard as a doctor just to be taking phone calls or video calls because you can't give that face-to-face treatment and it doesn't feel like you're giving a full service. Yeah, fair enough. Plus swings and roundabouts, I guess. It will be another busy day for our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. He'll be hosting National Cabinet I feel like it's Groundhog Day. Every Friday we bring you a story about National Cabinet. Do you think he looks forward to it or not? I don't know. I don't know if anyone looks forward to it anymore, but they will be talking about the plan to bring up the number of Australians returning from overseas each week from 4,000 to 6,000. That's on the agenda today. Yeah, it was like it was really fun to start with, this whole new thing, National Cabinet, (laughs) Team Australia. 
Um, it sounds like a drag now that they're not really agreeing with each other, especially on border closures. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they can change the number of Australians coming home. Some of those stories are really heartbreaking about people struggling to get home. I think one of the biggest problems, though, is the airlines. Yeah, everyone, and the ticket prices. Everyone and... we've spoken to has had to get a business class yeah. flight to get home, but it's like you can't fit them all in business class, so why are they having to pay for business class? I think the airlines have a lot of questions to answer, although they're doing it really tough as well. Earlier this week, we told you about how Queensland's chief health officer had been given police protection after death threats. Here is Dr Jeanette Young talking about that situation. It has taken enormous toll on me, but this has taken enormous toll on nearly every single person in our community. Now a 43-year-old man has been charged with making death threats against Dr Young and against Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk. Police raided the man's home at Narang on the Gold Coast. He'll front court next month accused of using a carriage service to make a threat to kill. The Premier and the Chief Health Officer, Dr Young, spend every waking hour working out how they can keep Queenslanders safe. And it is absolutely reprehensible that anyone would think of doing harm to these two very fine Queenslanders. That was the Queensland Treasurer, Cameron Dick. Imagine waking up on a Friday morning... $60 million richer. Oh, my God, I love this story, but I also equally hate it at the same time. Yeah, this is what happened to a very lucky Sydney woman in her 20s who won the entire Thursday night Powerball. Wow, the woman who is from the city's inner suburbs, um, she wanted to remain anonymous, I sort of don't blame her, says that at first she thought it was a prank call. Yeah, it'd be hard to take seriously. (laughs) I think one of the interesting things about that story is that she was relatively... Young, so she hadn't had the decades of you know buying tickets to up her chances. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was her first ticket, who knows? But her life's about to change. I wonder how long she can stay anonymous for. Yeah, <laughs> like hey, you, yeah, you, you weren't driving a Ferrari I last if week. That, like, yeah, I wonder if the money will cause more problems than it'll actually solve. Although, look, I would take 60 million dollars in a heartbeat. I don't care how many problems it brings to my life. I wonder how you sort of start spending it without everyone around you noticing. Just like you start subtly. It's like, I might have the um, the avo and the bacon today. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Tom. Annika is jumping into the studio with me next to talk Europe's second wave. Remember at the beginning of the pandemic in March when we were hearing a lot about Europe? Agony in Europe tonight as Italy's death toll passes 10,000. The death toll continues to climb across Spain. Hospitals are reaching full capacity. 9,000 patients with coronavirus in hospitals across England, one in 10 beds. Cases in Italy, France, Spain and the UK were out of control, which put their health systems under immense pressure. In the months that followed, the continent seemed to have gotten the virus under control. Residents appeared to be enjoying the European summer and travelling freely between countries. Yeah, like Izzy. She's a 25-year-old Australian healthcare worker living in London and she recently took a trip to Poland. I went to Europe because it was allowed. We had advice that said you can visit these countries for non-essential, aka tourist reasons and it's just one of those things you know you're working all through lockdown you've saved a bit of money and you just want to just go on a trip somewhere and it wasn't frowned upon I mean people when I came back to work people weren't oh how dare you travel I mean that's not the that's not the vibe or the attitude going around London at the moment it's kind of like well where can you travel if you can like I've had all my friends have traveled and yeah it's just um you just can do what you can because we're trying to salvage the last of 
summer over here. So basically lockdown hit as soon as there was good weather in London. Um, and coming out of winter, that wasn't fun. So yeah, um, traveling definitely just to try and, I guess, make use of some sun, I guess. Summer might have ended well for Izzy, but it doesn't appear to have ended well for Europe. Clusters of COVID-19 are popping up across Europe, and now people there are worried about a possible second wave. Paris, cases are rising fast above the levels recorded back in March, and it's the same in Spain. Second wave that's clearly now uh, moving across Europe. Yeah, last week the EU and Britain announced 41,000 fresh cases a day on average. That figure is 28,000 more than the best week in July, right before the second wave hit. It's also 5,000 more than the worst week back in April. And this Saturday, just gone, France set a very grim new record. It recorded a whopping 10,561 new infections in a single day. While the UK, Austria, Belgium, Italy, Poland, the Netherlands and Spain, just to name a few, are all experiencing a second wave. One thing, though, as medical teams learn more about the virus, they are managing to keep the death rates lower during the second wave. There were, on average, just 360 deaths announced each day across Europe last week, which is not great, but it's much better than the 4,012 daily deaths recorded at the pandemic's peak in April. So what is going on in Europe? How did this happen? Is this wave any different to the first wave. Martin McKee is a professor of European public health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and he's also the former chair of the World Health Organization's European Advisory Committee on Health Research. He joins us now. Professor, welcome. What can you tell us about what is happening in Europe at the moment? Well, Europe was hit very hard by the virus early on, and we had widespread uh, lockdowns. But unfortunately, as the restrictions have eased, what we've seen is that the uh, the virus is exploiting the opportunities and is coming back to a greater extent in some countries than in others. If my social media is anything to go by, I've seen a lot of people enjoying the European summer. I've got a friend in Portugal at the moment. There doesn't seem to be, I guess, the strict lockdowns that we're doing in Australia. We can't even move into states. So is that lax attitude, is that what's caused this second wave? I think in a number of countries there were really tight uh, lockdowns at the beginning and there was a very high level of adherence. But it's certainly true that as governments have tried to open up society, and in particular with concerns about the economy, they've been giving out, many of them have been giving out quite mixed messages like essentially go out, use, go to the restaurants, go to bars and so on to keep people in employment, keep the money going, but at the same time, protect yourself from getting the virus. And I think people are getting a little bit confused and in some cases a little cynical. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. I know one of the policies in the UK was vouchers for restaurants. So there was quite, you know, a push for people to get out. How hard is it to lock people down a second time. Are people recalcitrant or are they willing to accept that if the numbers rise, then, you know, strict lockdown measures have to come into force again? One of the mistakes we made at the very beginning was an assumption that people wouldn't uh, restrict their movement, wouldn't stay at home, but they did much more than politicians thought. And we've done research showing that in many countries, people were ahead of the politicians in restricting their movement. So I think if people recognise that there is a genuine threat from the virus, they are willing to make considerable sacrifices. You know, this is a dangerous virus. So do we know what has actually caused the second wave? 
It varies from place to place. So some of the early outbreaks were in, uh, particularly in factories and uh, some meatpacking plants and food producing plants and so on. Then we had issues around migrant workers often who were living in very poor quality accommodation, particularly in Spain, moving from place to place. But more recently, it's been very much um, a, an epidemic among young people but unfortunately, that's now spreading. They're taking the virus home with them and it is spreading into older people. But certainly for the last two months or so, pretty well everywhere, we have seen an upsurge, particularly among adolescents and people in their 20s and 30s. We are seeing at the moment, at least, lower death rates. While the number of infections tends to climb, fewer people are dying and even fewer people are going to hospital. In Germany, for instance, 5% of people are going to hospital compared to, say, 22 uh, early in April. Is What does this tell us? Is this, you know, because we know more about the virus, are we managing it better? What should we read from, I guess, the lower death rate? Well, there are a number of things to uh, that need to be taken into account. The first thing is that we were clearly grossly underestimating the number of cases early on because we weren't testing very many people. So probably in the UK, we were catching about recording about one in 10 cases. We're doing better now, though, of course, in England, we've still got quite a long way to go. So the scale of the, the pandemic was much greater then. But I think what we're also seeing now is quite significant advances in treatment. One of the things that we've learned, we, we assumed that this was a viral pneumonia, like other viral pneumonias, and you might you should ventilate somebody relatively quickly. That, in fact, is not the case, and it's probably better to, to wait a bit. And uh, we're also just getting much better at treating people more generally. We now understand much more about the blood clotting, which is a problem. People are going on, anti on uh, drugs to thin their blood. Also, we've got dexamethasone, one of the drugs that's been found to be quite to be useful in, in people with advanced disease. So I think generally a whole series of things have happened that just mean we're much, much better at treating this condition now. But that doesn't mean that there aren't risks. And what we are seeing, of course, and really important distress for young people, is that a lot of people are being left with long lasting problems. How long they'll last, we don't know yet. But there's this condition, long COVID, that people are talking about is affecting a lot of young people. Let's talk about Sweden. It has always been a bit of an outlier uh, in this pandemic, a little bit. It decided uh, not to lock down. It was one of the few countries in Europe to take that approach. And it appears, at least uh, in the last few weeks and months, to have potentially dodged a second wave that we're seeing in other countries. What do you make of Sweden's approach? And... Is it too early to call it perhaps a success? It's definitely too early to call it a success. In fact, I'm not sure I would call it a success at all. Uh, what we see is that they've had death rates, which have been four to ten times higher than their neighbours, Norway and uh, Denmark. And yet they've had the same hit to the economy as a percentage of GDP as their neighbours. So they've lost a lot more people. They haven't had the benefits in the economy. But also what we saw there was that even if the government was not imposing the same strict lockdown, and it was imposing quite a lot of restrictions in terms of large gatherings and so on, uh, what was happening was that Swedish people were limiting their own movement. So right from the very beginning, the, the data used uh, using uh, mobile phones showed that the mobility was falling by about 50% uh, with it by the end of March. Uh, now, in other parts of Europe, it was even more than that, but it was still quite a bit. 
As to what's happening now, I think we just do need to wait and see. Uh, I think it is still a bit premature because uh, even right across Europe, we're seeing the second wave coming back at different stages in different places. There's a debate about what the Swedish argument was because some of the people involved seem to have um, said different things at different times. But one of the ideas was that you would get widespread immunity in the population. That certainly does not seem to be the case. Professor, can I ask you about mask use? How widespread is it in Europe? And is that having much effect as countries sort of head into this second wave? It's pretty widespread. It does vary from place to place, but it is. And there's been a change in view. And my view for has changed because certainly when I was looking at the evidence at the very beginning, which was largely from influenza, you know, I thought the evidence wasn't particularly strong. But with coronavirus, which is spread in a different, well, slightly different way, but also spread by people who are often not showing symptoms. Face coverings do seem to be much more effective. There was a very good study from Germany that was able to look at the timing of introducing of rules different times in different cities, and it showed that there really clearly was a link. So I think people are now accepting them. We don't have anything like the problems in the United States mm. where it has become highly politicised. There are very, very small in number of individuals who make a stance on this in terms of personal liberty. But that's really, they're a tiny, tiny minority. So it is widely accepted. If it's widely accepted and numbers are going up, does that suggest they're not working or people aren't using them correctly? They're only one part of a strategy. Yeah, you know, we've got to look at all of the things that we do as, you know, each contributes to reducing the risk. I wanted to ask you about Australia's approach. I'm not sure how much attention it gets on the news over there. Mm, but quite a lot. We've been told we're not <laughs> in some ways we're technically going through it for a suppression strategy, but it almost appears mm -hmm. to be an elimination strategy. Um, mm -hmm. Melbourne, for instance, won't get out of lockdown until the cases fall to very low levels. Do you think that's a reasonable goal, especially given some of the social and economic impacts that will have? Well, the first thing is that there isn't a trade-off between health and the economy. There's lots of evidence, and going all the way back to 1918-1919 in the US, a study of 43 cities, the cities that locked down earliest and stayed locked down longest were the ones that had the fastest economic growth by 1925. If you don't control the virus, people are not going to go back out. They're, they're, they're not stupid. They realise that there is a risk, and that's what's happening in the UK at the minute very much. Yes, I think the, the argument for elimination, which is different from eradication, often people conflate the two um, because with eradication, as we had with smallpox, you need to get rid of it everywhere. But New Zealand's been pretty successful. Yes, they've had a, some cases come back in Auckland, but they've been able to control further spread and they've been able to keep large parts of the economy relatively open. The difficulty if you don't go for an elimination is that this virus, um, with you know, if it doubles every seven days or so. Well, you know, one case then becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight. And within a very short period of time, you're up to a very high level. And that's the problem with exponential growth. Mm. Uh, you know, once it gets out of control, it gets out of control. That was Professor Martin McKay from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And it just goes to show that diligence and vigilance is something that every single country, regardless of how it is that they are tackling this pandemic, are just going to have to employ 
until we get that vaccine. Makes me a little bit nervous coming into the warmer months to see what happened in Europe as they were out enjoying the lovely summer weather and what might happen here, but fingers crossed. All right, that is our show for today. Have a great weekend, everybody. Tell someone you know about the podcast. Slide into our DMs. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Catch you Monday. Bye. A Podcast One production.